Part Two, Chapter Sixteen of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Chapter Sixteen, The Breakup of the Ice. Two hours later, all had returned to Fort Hope. And the next day, the sun, for the first time, shone upon that part of the coast which was formerly on the west of the island. Kalumaha, to whom this phenomenon was familiar, had been right, and if the sun had not been the guilty party, neither had the compass. The position of Victoria Island, with regard to the cardinal points, was again completely changed, since it had broken loose from the mainland, and not only the island. But the vast ice field in which it was enclosed had turned half around. This displacement proved that the ice field was not connected with the continent, and that the thaw would soon set in. Well, Lieutenant said, Mrs. Barnett, this change of front is certainly in our favour. Cape Bathurst and Fort Hope are now turned towards the northeast. In other words, towards the point nearest to the continent. And the ice wall, through which our boat could only have made its way by a difficult and dangerous passage, is no longer between us and America, and so all is for the best, is it not? Added Mrs. Barnett with a smile. Indeed, it is," replied Hobson, who fully realized all that was involved in this change of the position of Victoria Island. No incident occurred between the tenth and twenty-first March. But there were indications of the approaching change of the season. The temperature varied from forty-three to fifty degrees Fahrenheit, and it appeared likely that the breaking up of the ice would commence suddenly. Fresh crevices opened, and the unfrozen water flooded the surface of the ice, as the whalers poetically express it. The wounds of the ice field bled copiously, and the opening of these wounds was accompanied by a sound like the roar of artillery. A warm rain fell for several hours and accelerated the dissolution of the solid coating of the ocean. The birds, ptarmigans, puffins, ducks, etc., which had deserted the island in the beginning of winter, now returned in large numbers. Marbre and Sabine killed a few of them, and on some were found the tickets tied round their necks by the lieutenant several months before. Flocks of white trumpeter swans also reappeared and filled the air with their loud clarion tones, whilst the quadrupeds, rodents, and carnivora alike continued to frequent the vicinity of the fort like tame domestic animals. Whenever the state of the sky permitted, which was almost every day, Hobson took the altitude of the sun. Sometimes Mrs. Barnett, who had become quite expert in handling the sextant, assisted him. Or took the observations in his stead. It was now most important to note the very slightest changes in the latitude and longitude of the island. It was still doubtful to which current it would be subject after the thaw, and the question whether it would be drifted north or south was the chief subject of the discussions between the lieutenant and Mrs. Barnett. The brave lady had always given proof of an energy superior to that of most of her sex. And now she was to be seen every day, braving fatigue and venturing on to the half-decomposed or pancake ice, in all weathers, through snow or rain, and on her return to the factory, ready to cheer and help everybody, and to superintend all that was going on, 
We must add that her efforts were ably seconded by the faithful Madge. Mrs. Barnett had compelled herself to look the future firmly in the face, and although she could not fail to fear for the safety of all, and sad presentiments haunted her, she never allowed herself to betray any uneasiness. Her courage and confidence never seemed to waver. She was as ever the kind, encouraging friend of each and all, and none could have dreamt of the conflict of spirit going on beneath her quiet exterior demeanour. Lieutenant Hobson's admiration of her character was unbounded, and he had also entire confidence in Kalumaha, often trusting to her natural instinct as implicitly as a hunter to that of his dog. The young Eskimo was, in fact, very intelligent, and familiar from babyhood with the phenomena of the polar regions. On board a whaler she might have advantageously replaced many an ice-master or pilot whose business it is to guide a boat amongst the ice. Every day Kalumaha went to examine the state of the ice-field. The nature of the noise produced by the breaking of the icebergs in the distance was enough to tell her how far the decomposition had advanced. No foot was surer than hers upon the ice. No one could spring more lightly forwards than she when her instinct told her that the smooth surface was rotten underneath and she would scud across an ice-field, riddled with fissures, without a moment's hesitation. From the 20th to the 30th March, the thaw made rapid progress. Rain fell abundantly, and accelerated the dissolution of the ice. It was to be hoped that the ice-field would soon open right across, and that in about fifteen days Hobson would be able to steer his boat into the open sea. He was determined to lose no time, as he did not know, but that the Kamchatka current might sweep the island to the north, before it could come under the influence of the bearing current. But, Kalumaha repeated again and again, there is no fear of that, for the breaking up of the ice does not proceed upwards, but downwards. The danger is there, she added, pointing to the south in the direction of the vast Pacific Ocean. The young girl's confidence on this point reassured Hobson, for he had no reason now to dread the falling to pieces of the island in the warm waters of the Pacific. He meant everybody to be on board the boat before that could happen, and they would not have far to go to get to one or the other continent, as the strait is in reality a kind of funnel through which the waters flow between Cape East on the Asiatic side and Cape Prince of Wales on the American. This will explain the eager attention with which the slightest change in the position of the island was noticed. The bearings were taken every day, and everything was prepared for an approaching and perhaps sudden and hurried embarkation. Of course, all the ordinary avocations of the factory were now discontinued. There was no hunting or setting of traps. The magazines were already piled with furs, most of which would be lost. The hunters and trappers had literally nothing to do. But McNabb and his men, having finished their boat, employed their leisure time in strengthening the principal house of the fort, which would probably be subjected to considerable pressure from the accumulation of ice on the coast during the further progress of the thaw, unless, indeed, Cape Bathurst should prove a sufficient protection. Strong struts were fixed against the outside walls. Vertical props were placed inside the rooms to afford additional support 
to the beams of the ceiling, and the roof was strengthened so that it could bear considerable weight. These various works were completed early in April, and their utility, or rather their vital importance, was very soon manifested. Each day brought fresh symptoms of returning spring, which seemed likely to set in early after this strangely mild polar winter. A few tender shoots appeared upon the trees, and the newly thawed sap swelled the bark of beeches, willows, and arbutus. Tiny mosses tinged with pale green the slopes under the direct influence of the sunbeams, but they were not likely to spread much, as the greedy rodents collected about the fort pounced upon them and devoured them almost before they were above the ground. Great were the sufferings of Corporal Joliffe at this time. We know that he had undertaken to protect the plot of ground cultivated by his wife. Under ordinary circumstances, he would merely have had to drive away feathered pilferers, such as guillemots or puffins, from his sorrel and scurvy grass. A scarecrow would have been enough to get rid of them, still more the corporal in person. But now all the rodents and ruminants of the Arctic fauna combined to lay siege to his territory. Reindeer, polar hares, muskrats, shrews, martins, etc., braved all the threatening gestures of the corporal, and the poor man was in despair, for whilst he was defending one end of his field, the enemy was preying upon the other. It would certainly have been wiser to let the poor creatures enjoy, unmolested, the crops, which could be of no use to the colonists, as the fort was to be so soon abandoned, and Mrs. Barnett tried to persuade the angry corporal to do so, when he came to her twenty times a day with the same wearisome tale, but he would not listen to her. "'To lose the fruit of all our trouble,' he repeated, "'to leave an establishment which was prospering so well, "'to give up the plants Mrs. Joliffe and I sowed so carefully. "'Oh, madam, sometimes I feel disposed to let you all go "'and stay here with my wife. "'I am sure the company would give up all claim on the island to us.' "'Mrs. Barnett could not help laughing at this absurd speech, "'and sent the corporal to his little wife.' who had long ago resigned herself to the loss of her sorrel, scurvy-grass, and other medicinal herbs. We must here remark that the health of all the colonists remained good. They had at least escaped illness. The baby, too, was now quite well again, and throve admirably in the mild weather of the early spring. The thaw continued to proceed rapidly from the 2nd to the 5th April. The weather was warm, but cloudy, and rain fell frequently in large drops. The wind blew from the southwest, and was laden with the heated dust of the continent. Unfortunately, the sky was so hazy that it was quite impossible to take observations. Neither sun, moon, nor stars could be seen through the heavy mists, and this was the more provoking, as it was of the greatest importance to note the slightest movements of the island. It was on the night of the 7th April, that the actual breaking up of the ice commenced. In the morning, the lieutenant, Mrs. Barnett, Kalumaha, and Sergeant Long had climbed to the summit of Cape Bathurst, and saw that a great change had taken place in the chain of icebergs. The huge barrier had parted nearly in the middle, and now formed two separate masses, the larger of which seemed to moving northwards in the chain of icebergs. Was it the Kamchatka current which produced this motion? Would the floating island take the same direction? 
The intense anxiety of the lieutenant and his companions can easily be imagined. Their fate might now be decided in a few hours, and if they should be drifted some hundred miles to the north, it would be very difficult to reach the continent in a vessel so small as theirs. Unfortunately, it was impossible to ascertain the nature or extent of the displacement which was going on. One thing was, however, evident the island was not yet moving, at least not in the same direction as the ice wall. It therefore seemed probable that whilst part of the ice field was floating to the north, that portion immediately surrounding the island still remained stationary. This displacement of the icebergs did not in the least alter the opinion of the young Eskimo. Kilumaha still maintained that the thaw would proceed from north to south, and that the ice wall would shortly feel the influence of the bearing current. To make herself more easily understood, she traced the direction of the current on the sand with a little piece of wood, and made signs that in following it the island must approach the American continent. No argument could shake her conviction on this point and it was almost impossible not to feel reassured when listening to the confident expressions of the intelligent native girl. The events of the 8th, 9th, and 10th April seemed, however, to prove Kalumaha to be in the wrong. The northern portion of the chain of icebergs drifted further and further north. The breaking up of the ice proceeded rapidly and with a great noise, and the ice fields opened all round the island with a deafening crash. Out of doors it was impossible to hear one's self speak. A ceaseless roar, like that of artillery, drowned every other sound. About half a mile from the coast, on that part of the island overlooked by Cape Bathurst, the blocks of ice were already beginning to crowd together, and to pile themselves upon each other. The ice wall had broken up into numerous separate icebergs, which were drifting towards the north. At least it seemed as if they were moving in that direction. Hobson became more and more uneasy, and nothing that Kalumaha could say reassured him. He replied by counter-arguments, which could not shake her faith in her own belief. At last, on the morning of the 11th April, Hobson showed Kalumaha the last icebergs disappearing in the north, and again endeavoured to prove to her that facts were against her. "'No, no,' replied Kalumaha, with an air of greater conviction than ever. "'No, the icebergs are not going to the north, but our island is going to the south.' She might, perhaps, be right after all, and Hobson was much struck by this last reply. It was really possible that the motion of the icebergs towards the north was only apparent, and that Victoria Island, dragged along with the ice-field, was drifting towards the strait.' but it was impossible to ascertain whether this were really the case, as neither the latitude nor longitude could be taken. The situation was aggravated by a phenomenon peculiar to the polar regions, which rendered it still darker and more impossible to take observations of any kind. At the very time of the breaking up of ice, the temperature fell several degrees. A dense mist presently enveloped the Arctic latitudes, but not an ordinary mist. The soil was covered with a white crust, totally distinct from hoar-frost. It was, in fact, a watery vapour which congeals on its precipitation. The minute particles of which this mist was composed formed a thick layer on trees, shrubs, 
the walls of the fort, and any projecting surface which bristled with pyramidal or prismatic crystals, the apexes of which pointed to the wind. Hobson at once understood the nature of this atmospheric phenomena, which whalers and explorers have often noticed in the spring in the polar regions. It is not a mist or fog, he said to his companions. It is a frost rime, a dense vapor which remains in a state of complete congelation. But whether a fog or a frozen mist, this phenomenon was none the less to be regretted, for it rose a hundred feet at least above the level of the sea, and it was so opaque that the colonists could not see each other when only two or three paces apart. Everyone's disappointment was very great. Nature really seemed determined to try them to the uttermost. When the break-up of the ice had come at last, when the wandering island was to leave the spot in which it had so long been imprisoned, and its movements ought to be watched with the greatest care, this fog prevented all observations. This state of things continued for four days. The frost rime did not disappear until the 15th April, but on the morning of that date a strong wind from the south rent it open and dispersed it. The sun shone brightly once more, and Hobson eagerly seized his instruments. He took the altitude and found that the exact position of Victoria Island was then latitude 69 degrees 57 minutes, longitude 179 degrees 33 minutes. Kalumaha was right. Victoria Island, in the grasp of the bearing current, was drifting towards the south. End of chapter 16